Assalamu alaikum, everyone, and welcome to the first ever The House of Arkham podcast episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about a really interesting topic today. We're going to be talking about big technology. It's something that uh, I've heard a lot of people discuss really over the past few years, uh, but in the past few months, ever since uh, Mark Zuckerberg did his truly odd uh, metaverse intro video, which I've still refused to watch, um, we've, uh, we've had a lot more people that are very anxious about the dominance of technology companies and just big technology in our lives. Um, I've got a truly exciting guest that, uh, and, and a friend uh, that I've brought on to, uh, to talk to us today. Uh, it's uh, Brother Malik Abu Luqman. Zakalakha uh, for joining us, brother. Assalamu alaikum. Waalaikum salam, How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. How are you doing, man? You excited about the metaverse? I'm very excited about the metaverse. Looking to buy <laughs> real estate in the metaverse right now. Are you? This is, this is already going terribly. I thought we had you booked as the anti-guy. <laughs> Uh, this is this is bad. Um, uh, well, you know, look, Malik. A lot of people have been talking about uh, technology, as I said, for for um, past few years. It's gotten quite bad in the past few months when people seem to genuinely think we're on some kind of a life and society changing event with the introduction of the metaverse, and it's brought up a lot of conversations about the role of big tech uh, in their absolute supremacy in 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 uh, a lot of our a lot of the aspects of our life uh, but why do you think this is an important topic yeah so just uh before we begin just want to give a brief, brief introduction about myself so my name is oh of course Malik. yes please i forgot please introduce yourself for them like i'm excited to have you but people don't know why yet so please introduce yourself my name is Malik Abu Lukman. I've been with Hizb Tahrir for about 20 years. Hizb Tahrir is a global Islamic political party that looks to resume the Islamic way of life in the Muslim lands. And so part of that is to understand how the Islamic system would work in terms of its concepts, laws, and so on. Mm. And from a professional perspective, I'm a CPA, but I've specialized in technology. So the areas I look at most recently is audit innovations. So Things I've covered, for example, are you know blockchain, artificial intelligence, and social media. I did a, a big uh, social media project a, a few years ago. Haven't had a chance to delve fully into the metaverse, but I think on the sort of the recent professional conferences that I've been part of, they've they've raised some of these interesting issues, which I'm sure we'll talk about. So, mm -hmm. so that's a bit of my background. As for your question about why this is an important topic, I think there's two dimensions we have to look at. The first dimension, which is right in front of us, is how is this affecting our youth? You know, we know that media for a long time has had a tremendous impact on the youth. It fills our, our minds as youth who grew up in, in Canada. We know how, the impact of, uh, of how that has affected us. And, you know, as we discuss the issues of the metaverse and social media, we know that even as youth without the internet, the issue of television programming was a big topic of how this was corrupting the Muslim youth because the concepts mm -hmm. in those shows and things like that, even if they're cartoons, would impact the Islamic concepts that we hold about you know men-women relationships and so on. Sure. And so I think that's one, one dimension, and that has to be addressed. We have to address and see how this is affecting the youth, what values are being slid by into the minds of, uh, of, of our youth and ourselves. The second dimension, which is also equally important, is to understand how Islam is capable of dealing with things like, you know, like we talked about blockchain, 
as well as you know cryptocurrencies and things like the metaverse like what is islam's perspective and the reason why that's so important and it it feeds back into the first arena is that the importance of that understanding is to build confidence that islam is capable we've been fed a narrative for a very long time from the colonialists the secularists that islam is not capable islam is something that you should throw behind your back and we have to we have to we have to put a stop to that and we, the way we can do that practically is by talking when we talk about these issues is to show the islamic perspective from a systems perspective or from a societal perspective and to show that how islam is more than capable of dealing with these issues in the right way Jazakallah khair for that and for for highlighting those two those two aspects. I, I will get back to your uh, latter point uh, later, um, but I really want to focus on the youth thing that you mentioned. I mean, I grew up here, right? And uh, I remember the role of TV and Disney movies and stuff like that in my life. Um, and it was there was always this discussion about oh the TV is haram for example which you know us kids would get really defensive about um, or you know other uh, such things um, and I guess my experience of it was is that the uh, the huge focus of the conversation was always around guilt right it was always like you as a kid are individually bad if you watch bad things if you don't avert your eyes during a kissing scene. If you don't, you know, uh, as I grew up later, if you don't like, you know, uh, personally avoid going on uh, filthy websites or, you know, if you aren't, uh, you know, careful to not miss your prayers because you're playing a video game or watching a movie. And obviously all of that is true. I mean, we are personally responsible for these things. But I, I just I just feel that there wasn't at the time and maybe there is more now as much sympathy for the structural nature of the problem, right? Like if you've got the world's every form of distraction and of obscenity and of, you know, uh, everything just to click away from you at all times, and you've got like psychologists and, you know, like experts designing technology to make you want to go to those things. As a kid, that is a really difficult struggle. And it is a struggle against something collective, you know, something societal. Can you can you speak to that at all, the structural nature of this problem? Yeah, and I think the first thing is that what we have to realize as parents and as youth is that the default for an individual in society is to want to integrate into that society, right? Mm -hmm. That the natural order of things is that that individual will meld with with their surroundings because because human beings when they exist in society those societies are not just composed of people and individuals mm -hmm. they're, con they're con composed of systems mm -hmm. and understanding so for example when you watch like a show like transformers it's about you're, participating. you're really dating yourself there malik transformers <laughs> is not a show anybody watches but yes please go on i'm sorry i interrupted you <laughs> Right. So like in the 80s, to your point, uh, uh, you know, that's an important point. It was in the 80s prior to the Internet when you were watching the because the the reality of 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 having sort of social relevance in your circles as a child was was what you watched your shows and you could then participate in that yeah. society. So if you did not watch those shows, you didn't watch Transformers, you didn't watch Spider-Man or whatever the show was. You would have a trouble. You'd have trouble. Uh, work. You'd have trouble, sort of 
fitting in. Like, what are you going to talk to about school? You're going to sit by yourself and eat your lunch in a corner. That yeah. that doesn't even sound healthy, right? Like you're you almost it's <laughs> sound, you know it sounds like you have it kind of issues, right? And yeah. what what I think that the reason why that's important because going back to your point about making the youth feel guilty, it's really to empathize with the challenge that that they have that we had uh, as youth growing up is that it's natural to want uh, us to it's natural to to go in that direction. And the biggest proof of that is how our ancestors became Muslim, right? Is that because mm. our ancestors became Muslim, because especially when you look at places like Sham and Iraq, where the Sahaba, may Allah be pleased them, and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when the Khilafah Rashidin went in and implemented Islam on the people, you know, the, the, the Muslims were few. They were the ones in charge, though. And so those common emotions and thoughts, they... they they, they, the non-Muslims were immersed in that and, and eventually, till this day, mashallah, by permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in those territories, the people are Muslim till today. So, you know, we need to, when we look at that, we need to understand that. And so when it comes to this idea, as you said, is that there's a much, there's, it's not just a matter of, you know, individual responsibility. It's understanding that these things, as you said, there's millions, if not billions of dollars that is behind these companies to make it as attractive as possible, to make it as uh, addictive as possible, right? You know, yeah. there's a there's an ethicist by the name of uh, I think his name is Tristan Harris, who used to work at Google, and what he was saying was that which uh, which which is important for us to identify is that you know you're facing that algorithm on the other side uh, that is uh, addicting you to this, and it's been programmed by not just uh, computer scientists, but through machine learning, it is has has learned how to outsmart you because it's programmed by uh, millions upon millions of interactions, and yes. so it is represents the collective intelligence of a number of people of millions of people, and so it's smarter. Uh, it's 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 smarter than you. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. when we get when we get tricked by it, it's, it shouldn't be like, oh, I, I should just, you know, you know, you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps. It's that we should understand, hey, this is this is, uh, you know, uh, you know, Dawood al-Islam versus Jalut, right? Kind of kind of uh, uh, contest. Yeah, no. And, and I, I think I think that's that's such a fair point. It's not so much about like, yes, uh, uh, to be clear, you're not taking away the idea of individual responsibility. We are still supposed to tell our youth to individually be responsible for avoiding these things. But you're just saying that, I guess what you're saying is that there is there, the, the problem is so large that stopping at that, stopping at just telling our kids, hey, be good, uh, isn't enough. If we really care about our children, we have to go further and address the structural issues. Absolutely. And I think the difference here is that as we agree, every individual will uh, will be held accountable as an individual and they can't say, well, I didn't live in an Islamic society, so I should go to Jannah. I did all these haram things. Uh, yeah. That's that's not that's no excuse on the Day of Judgment. That was an excuse for the Sahaba who lived in Mecca, who died in Mecca. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it won't be excuse for us, right? Those who, so no one should take that away. However, if we underestimate the challenge, we will never succeed because... A, a sound strategy is capable of uh, looking at all the dimensions of the problem. And if we just pretend it's an individual problem and it's not, then we will fail, right? Because we didn't adequately understand the the full nature of the beast. And so I think that's what's important, right? Like I th I, personally, I think it's very empowering 
to know I'm not the source of the corruption as an individual, that the source mm. of the corruption is the society. It's those algorithms that, and the people that programmed it. And it's understanding that once you understand it, hey, wait a minute, it's not me that's the problem, it's the outside world. And then it kind of you kind of have a roadmap conceptually to understand, hey, I shouldn't give these guys an on-ramp into my mind, right? I'm in this yeah. struggle with them. And so yeah. I should not, you know, I should not give them an on-ramp into my mind. But it, if we don't uh, appreciate the struggle and appreciate the full roadmap, then how how do we develop an effective strategy? For sure, for sure. And I think I think what's so useful about the idea of strategy links to your to your other point, which is that we need to get to that robust Islamic solution, right? We need to get to, there is a mission here. We're not just avoiding something bad. We're trying to replace something bad with something good. But for that, you need to understand that it is a structural issue. Uh, so Jazakallah khair for that. Uh, but, but, but maybe getting more onto your second point about how Islam would deal with this societally I mean, it's a it's a it's a big topic. So we've kind of broken it down uh, into into separate topics here that I think would be better for us to talk about. And and what I want to start with is just at the outset: is big tech even permissible Islamically? And let me let me frame that question a little. So uh, Sister Maryam Jamila, she was a a, a, a Jewish uh, woman in the Bronx who embraced Islam. Uh, became really, in, uh, you know, uh, interested in Islamic society versus the Western society she grew up in. Uh, moved to uh, Pakistan actually because she became uh, really involved with the works of uh, of Abu Lala Maududi. Amila, uh, you know, have mercy on him. He passed away many years ago, um, and uh, she uh, she became like a student of his, and then wrote things that were, uh, you know. Uh, about Islam and society. Uh, may Allah be pleased um, or have mercy on her as well. She passed away uh, more recently. But what she argued was that, you know, industrialization was inherently un-Islamic, right? That the existence of an industrialized society from just the capacity and a capability pers- perspective is haram. Regardless of who's operating it, regardless of the parameters of the operation, she said that just the relationship that it gives you of exploitation and of the use of the of, of the natural environment was was unnatural and haram completely. Is this the Islamic response to technology? Is this how we approach modernity and industrialization, or or do we have an alternative here? So I think that you can, when you look at this point of view, which is not uncommon within the Ummah, you can empathize with it. You can under, appreciate why the Muslims would come to this conclusion given how the capitalist nations have used technology, you know, when they discovered how to split the atom, they used that to uh, nuke Japanese children, right? There's, you know, the two, the two, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, where, where they unleashed the power of the atom. And a lot of that was not necessarily to defeat Japan, but to scare off the Soviet Union, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the horrors that was unleashed, the cancers and the, and they didn't even know how it was going to affect the people. And, and, and unfortunately, when the, when the Americans took control of Japan, instead of curing those people, they used them as just lab rats to understand the effects of radiation in, when used in warfare. And when you see these types of things, when you see the brutal kind of factories that now we see in Bangladesh, for example, now in Bangladesh, these brutal kind of factories, the pollution and the sort of the, uh, how they brutalize people that work in those factories, 
those factories used to exist in the United States, right? Until there were strikes and mm-hmm. and and other types of actions that the labor movement did to yeah. get out of that. So when you look at these kind of things, whether it's Americans, whether it's Bangladeshis, whether it's Japan, we can appreciate why we would come to that conclusion when you see how this technology is used in such a wrong way. However, what Rasulullah taught us is that when it comes to technology, this by its nature is universal, right? There is nothing innately right or wrong about technology. What matters is how you, how you use it, right? So when we look at technology in its raw essence, we know that Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, for example, would sent uh, the sent Muslims to study how to make swords in Yemen. In Yemen at the time, the people they were studying for were not Muslim. Mm. Now, obviously, when you use those swords in warfare, you have to use it according to the Islamic uh, the Islamic concepts, the Islamic uh, what is halal must be done, what what is haram must be avoided when it comes to warfare. And this is one of the obviously when you look at how the Khilaf expanded we see that, you know, because of the Islamic laws that, you know, it was easy for the Persians or the Romans to defect because Islam treated people hum- people humanely, right? And, and they didn't make, you know, we saw in Iraq how, and I encourage everyone to Google Abu Ghraib if you're young and don't know what that's about. But when the Americans invaded Iraq, they made, you know, they tortured the, they tortured the Iraqis, they made them stand naked in pyramids. When the Sahaba invaded Iraq, they never did that, obviously. Of Instead... Uh, is, instead, Iraq became one of the best places to live on earth for, for not for a few days, but for hundreds of years until obviously the Mongols came. But the point is that what these Muslims built in Iraq, even though they invaded, just like the Americans did, the point was because the Islamic concepts of warfare and, and implementation were there, the people of Iraq uh, became the leaders of Islam, right? Like they, the house of the Khilafah moved to Baghdad for a few hundred years, right? And so yeah. it just shows... That, yeah, you can have technology, but how it's used must be used in an Islamic way. And the Islamic concepts must shape that. And we can just do a thought experiment and just consider this vast you know, uh, amount of information technology. What would the scholars, the, like, for example, Abu Hanifa, Rahimullah, uh, Imam Shafi, Rahimullah, and the other imams. Think about the muhaddith, like Bukhari and Muslim. Imagine what they would do with this kind of information technology to further their scholarship and the scholarship of the ummah. You could just, you know, it's just, it's, uh, you know, you can't, it, 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 you know, sends chills on, <laughs> on your yeah. spine. Just thinking like how, how much they could do with this technology at, at their disposal, given that there was, even without technology, that memorized uh, thousands uh, of, of hadith, for example. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 mind-boggling what they did without this technology, right? So imagine uh, the tools they would have if they if they were able to use it. Um, so I, I guess I guess what you're saying in this case then is is that there is a fundamentally different attitude that we would take to this technology than the attitude that's taken by uh, the the capitalist system, right? Like there's different assumptions or uh, different concepts that we would use in order to uh to ensure that it's being used to meet the needs of the people um can you kind of delve into that like what are those differences right like what would we do to make sure that we're not just repeating the mistakes of uh of the capitalists if we were to be using these technologies so so i think that it starts from the you know from the ground up is how do these technologies form and shape in in society right 
And so we see how the information technology is used today. So we use it like it's predominant use of information technologies in the banking, insurance, and the you know what they call the fire sector, the you know finance, insurance, and real estate. And that is what shapes society predominantly, right? Like it's uh, you know a lot of the jobs even in Toronto they rotate around the the banking industry. So one of the mm-hmm. biggest uses of information information technology is in is in the in in this what they call the fire sector, and if you've uh, if you're familiar with the with the book Flash Boys, where you know they they dug this huge kind of cable just to get a few milliseconds advantage in trading stocks. If you can imagine, <laughs> they, they would dig like you know destroy the land, destroy the earth for what Tra- trading like these kind of paper. You know what I mean? And and just. To, <laughs> And and like there was a huge secrecy because they didn't want the comp- competition to find out. Uh, it's a book by Michael Lewis, who also did the uh, uh, the movie the The Big Short. Um, so okay. he talks, okay. he, yeah. So he talks about how you know this advantage, and it was uh, uh, the, the the you know there's uh, there was disputes as to whether this was uh, right or not. But but the point the the focus is is that like why you know what I mean like you have all this technology you're not using to solve world hunger. But you're using it to uh, to to uh, trade for a few seconds. But if you, for example, um, you know, look at how uh, the you know the Muslims, like you know, simple example of how technology or use of tools will will be shaped by the Islamic Aqidah. What happened was when the Ottomans had a charity bowl, the charity bowl was shaped in a very unique way, and the way that charity bowl w- was shaped was that when the uh, there was a long arm, so that you had to stick your full arm in to grab the money or release the money. So you could not see what that person was doing within that charity bowl, right? So either they were putting money in or taking money out, and right? nobody knew which. Yeah, nobody knew which, and so that does two things. One is that it uh, it protects the honor and dignity of the per- individual. Who's taking money? But yeah. the second thing it does is it prevents the don- donor from yeah, from like you know doing things for showing off. It hides his it hides his charity as well, right? So yeah. you can see yeah. how the form of the charity bowl was uh, driven by the Islamic concepts and values, right? So when that that person designed that, and then it's the same thing with information technology. When we look at information technology, one of the the Things that even the non-Muslims complain about, even the non-Muslims complain about is intellectual property. Now, I know this is a much bigger topic and inshallah we can explore it more in depth later on, but intellectual property, it has no basis in Islam and it's purely a capitalist concept. Mm-hmm. And when you look at, you know, for example, some simple thing, like try looking in your library for a Kindle book. You won't find it. Why? Because of copyright, right? So the true digital uh, the true potential of digital technology and di- digitization of knowledge will never occur under capitalism because everyone wants to make a buck, and it's the top, you know, the top, uh, you know, the top one percent who's making all this money. Don't if you think artists <laughs> and all those people are making money, uh, you know, that's that's just propaganda. You know, when you really look at sources like Rolling Stones, they'll they'll set you straight as to what that true rate is. And like I said, we can always talk about that in a future episode. But the yeah, point is that. Yeah. The point is that IP, intellectual property, um, even with a vaccine, like that, it's only because they put those IP laws aside and decide to work together. That's what's going to allow the vaccine to kind of to be done faster. You know, does that make sense that even in something that we look at right now, where people, 
we have scientists, they should work together. And so Islam inherently, because it doesn't have these uh, capitalist concepts of, of ownership, because it has the Islamic concepts of ownership, you could see that how how like ideas would pro proliferate and how design would proliferate in society where real thinkers will be able to modify designs, especially since with technologies like the internet, with technologies like social media. So you could see that in an IP free world, you know, things like what they call open source, because I mean, you need open source because you still need a licensing system, but you wouldn't even need that in the Khilafah because it's default by, by default, it would be, um, you know, open source by, by default. So you would have this ability to share ideas, information, software programs, software applications. And you have that right now, like the, like Linux is a huge, is, is a competitor to Microsoft, Microsoft, right? Even though it's open source. And that's in a, in a capitalist system where people don't get their basic needs met, unlike in the Islamic system. So you can just see just that little window gives you a huge win, uh, idea of what's the potential in the, in the, in the, in a full Islamic society in the, in the Khilafah system. No, no, that does I look for that example? And it just it got me thinking. I mean, when you look at the majority of people who work in, say, you mentioned the vaccines in big pharma companies or big tech companies, they're not the ones who even the people who are actually working on these technologies are not the ones who are making all the money, right? They're not the ones that are no. raking in the billions and, and profits. And they're not the ones who you know, like the, the owners of these companies, they want to make it seem like in order to do technology, you need to create this kind of incentive structure, right? But the people who are actually doing the work, who are actually doing the research, coming up with the ideas, you know, putting it all out there, um, they're not the ones who are setting that as their requirement, right? They're just looking to be compensated for the labor they've done, which, I mean, of course, that's Islamic as well, right? Um, but the idea that it has to be this way where the IP exists and where, uh, you know, the lack of consideration for human, uh, you know, uh, problems or environmental degradation, that that's just the way technology has to operate. Uh, that's not true for either the people building it, the people working on it. That's only true for the people that are making money off it. That's, that's their standard essentially. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think that, uh, that there's a big mythology about capitalism and free markets about how the private industry was responsible for a lot of the uh, the innovation when in reality it's the investments in the public sector that have been usurped by the private interests and they make money off it i mean obviously the ob obvious one is the internet itself which was yeah. uh which was a military project uh the idea was how do you create a network that that can operate in 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 a nuclear attack, right? So if it was a nuclear attack, how do you create a network that can that doesn't rely on that sort of closed circuit? And so that's where the idea was come out of that. So it, you can you can see that by, by its design, it was designed to survive. And that's kind of one of the challenges. That's why it's so insecure. Uh, and security is a huge problem because it was never designed to be secure. It was designed to operate under hostile conditions. And yeah. that just shows you like everything, everyone talks about internet, 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 but it's not really something that was developed by the free market, right? It was developed by the military, right? And there's other things like yeah. GPS, so much of the iPhone, even Siri, for example, is an application of the CIA, for example. Uh, <laughs> That's not right? surprising. <laughs> no, right? So so the idea is that, you know, when you kind of peel back the layers, we always have to look deep into things because wherever, uh, you know, wherever people say capitalism did this and capitalism did that, it's, it's, it's probably a, you know, you got to look into that because uh, they're not known to tell the truth. 
For sure. I mean, even even the mRNA vaccines, for example, the actual technology, the mRNA itself is a it came out of uh, public bodies, right? Government bodies did the re- the the basic research that proved that mRNAs could work, and then of course these companies uh, ran the human trials and made profits and the millions and billions selling the vaccines, right? So right. Um, but I guess getting more into, I mean, now that we've kind of cleared the idea that there is a permissibility for us as Muslims to engage in big technology on a societal level. Uh, let's let's break down into some of what I think are some of the concerns of the Muslims when it comes to, uh, you know, big tech, right? Especially as we're getting pulled into uh, this metaverse reality uh, where we've got augmented reality and, uh, you know, virtual reality. Uh, what what kind of impact that may have in us and what we as Muslims should be prepared for. Um, I guess the first one is just the idea of, uh, of, of consumerism, right? I mean, Henry Giroux, who's a, who's a sociologist, uh, he talks about uh, the war on youth, like capitalism's war on young people, right? Bringing us back to the youth point we were making to begin with. And he says that, I mean, you know, we can all see the hard war on youth, right? Like you mentioned the atom bomb being used to nuke, you know, uh, Japanese children. Uh, you mentioned Iraq, you know, an entire generation's future, uh, you know, wrecked the way it was. Um, even in Canada, I mean, we know what's happened to indigenous youth with all the mass graves that have pulled up. And that's just that's just the, the more brutal end of it. But there's a lot of other stuff that's obviously happened as well. So that's like the hard war on youth, right? Where they're criminalized, bombed, you know, terrorized, etc. But then there's a soft war as well, which is using media to train them to be part of a consumer society. Essentially, give them obedience training where if an advertiser wants you to act in a certain way, you act in that way. If you are going to school, uh, you're actually not, you know, you're being trained to be a worker or a producer in society, right? And we see this gets even worse when we start talking about social media. So for example, with with TV, there's actually laws about, uh, you know, uh, protecting children from advertising those laws are never really applied on Instagram or YouTube. Not really, right? Right. So if you look at any like uh, like YouTuber that's an influencer that primarily targets 13-year-olds, which is like almost all of them, right? Uh, they, you know, talk up their merchandise and, you know, tell kids to buy it. Sometimes like 50% of their content is just that, Right. Um, yeah. and children are just watching it and they're addicted to it and they want to buy the merch. Uh, there were, there's like singers that will say, Oh, go buy every single one of my album in the, in the store and then take an Instagram picture of it to show how much you like me kind of thing. Right. And they're obviously right. saying this to kids. So then they then they'll, you know, steal their parents' credit card or bug them for something like that. Right. So, and there's no real, uh, laws around this. And of course, you know, everything else, uh, the pornography, uh, addiction, all those other things. So, as a as a Muslim society, how would we fight that? So, I mean, I think when it comes to from a societal perspective, is that we have to realize that this there's certain kind of foundational principles that this society is based on, which is you know obviously freedom. But the most important freedom is not the. And it's interesting when you kind of break that word down. What does that really mean? And 
you know, most of it, most of it will say, well, it's not Stalinism, it's not socialism, it's not communism, it's not fascism, but they don't really define it, right? And it's really what it does is that the you know the, it's the people who have the capital, I you know the freedom of ownership or shareholder value, if you want to call it that, uh, mm-hmm. is what drives society, and we have to understand that. And one of the the link to consumerism goes back way back into 1899. Nabisco, they were looking at how to how to deal with the problem of uh, uh, repetitive con- consumption. Because you see, what happened was that people were used to staying within their means in that time. You know, it was a very frugal sort of life. You know, 1899 is, you know, this was, you know, you know pr- obviously prior to not just World War II, but even World War I. And it was that, that people, you know, just, you know, if they didn't want something, they just didn't buy it. And so this was a problem for mass production because mass mm-hmm. production only makes money if people just keep buying and buying and buying. And yeah. so that's where advertising came in, right? So when it came to advertising, what uh, Nabisco did, it was that they uh, packaged their cookies with a brand, you know, you know, you know they, they said, it's, you know, this will be fresh and all that. Because until that time, cookies were bought in a barrel. Like, you know, you go to Bulk Barn or something like that and you buy like almonds <laughs> or dates and things like that. That's exactly how cookies were sold, right? That sounds amazing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Back in the gold old days, right? So, so the, so that's so the this is was what how they got repetitive consumption going, and this is was how the idea of 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 selling and selling and selling and selling was the real sort of driver was just to make money and for the you know the share price to go up and so on, and we see that even today when you have Apple giving their CEO stock options and these types of things this is what drives the society it's not driven by any sort of clever objective or vision it's just driven by pure uh the desire to sell and make money and for the corporations to you know if they made 10 percent uh if they made 100 million last year they got to make 110 million this year and next year got to make 121 million and so on and so on right and that's yeah. what really we have to understand that that is the you know, kind of the driver society. So when you look at the video game industry, it's worth $159 billion, right? Yeah. And just for scale, that's four times the movie industry, right? That's and insane. so, yeah, right? Like, you know, and, <laughs> you know, it's just thinking like back to, uh, you know, sort of my youth, it's like, you know, that the idea of video games, it was, you know, something in, it was just starting off with, you know, the, with the systems and the consoles were just something new. But, you know, the idea that those little, you know, weird eight-digit characters are going to eclipse the, uh, the the movie screen was not something that even in the ro- remote possibility, right? But here we are, right? And that's, yeah. and that's kind of the, the reality of, uh, of the system. And I think it's important to, uh, when we look at the differences in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the system, it's purely driven by desire, right? Like the capitalist system, which is freedom is just, you know, uh, Sprite had a, a, a saying, you know, obey your thirst. And that's really, I remember good... that. you do. Yes, I do. I remember that. Um, I guess, I guess my, my question there would be, first of all, I genuinely assume that in your youth, people played with rocks, Malik. So, you know, the eight bit uh, video game are oh, very cool. Very cool. Um, but what I'm saying is, is that I, I guess my question there would be, there is nothing haram necessarily about desiring cookies or desiring to play a game and there's nothing haram about selling those things right so if you're in islamic society and you're looking at these fundamentally halal things which is someone wanting to play a game and someone 
designing it to be more and more addictive, how do you stop them? It's they're they're both doing something that's mubah, that's that's permissible. So the big difference between Islam and capitalism is Islam has a vision for society, right? And when we look at how the Sahaba were, we could one of the examples that clearly illustrate how our society's difference is that no Muslim who loves the Sahaba and Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam could ever imagine the Sahaba, may Allah, uh, may Allah be pleased with them all, sitting at a comedy festival for like two hours, just laughing, mm. right? Mm. Now they did have they did have fun with each other, uh, like Noiman, uh, you know Ibn Amr, he was Ansari who used to play practical jokes, and he used to make Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam laugh, um, awesome. and he and he even made the Sahaba laugh out, you know the Khulafa Rashidin after him laugh, you know, and so this was. This is, uh, it, you know, like the way I, the way I kind of describe it, it's like you don't have to be frowning all the time, right? Like mm. it's like you, when we do things, we can be doing dawah to non-Muslims, you know, in, uh, in you know, the streets of Hamilton, but we can keep it light. We can make it, we can make it, you know, we can, we can, you know, laugh with each other when, you know, uh, I remember this incident when uh, Abu Bakr, may Allah be pleased with him, uh, when he was working with, uh, uh, with Ali, uh, and uh, may Allah be pleased with them as well. And Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam to get the Nusra, there was this incident, which is to get the support to establish the uh, uh, you know the first Islamic state. There was this incident where uh, where Abu Bakr had asked the youth a lot of questions, and then the youth started asking him a lot, lot of questions, and it uh, he got uh, he got embarrassed by the kind of questions he was asking, right? Mm, mm. And then, and then, and then, Ali and him had a good laugh about it after, right? So it's they're doing something very serious, which is establishing <laughs> Islam, right? But they're but they're you know having a good time while doing it, right? And I, so I think that's a good understanding. And then we can contrast that with uh, the uh, saying of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, which was reported in Ibn Majah: "Do not laugh a lot, for laughing a lot deadens the heart." Mm. And mm. so, yeah, we're. So we can have fun while we're doing Islamic things, right? But the idea of us opening up comedy festivals and just laughing all the time, this idea of pursuing entertainment all the time, is not uh, is not something from Islam. Now, when it comes to food and all that, like okay, like one of the one of the key differences between how we uh, the 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 structure of the society, it's like it's small business that dominates the Islamic society, right? Because of the yeah. way that is the Islamic capital structures work, you have to have be a full partner. You can't separate the capital like you see now with with sh- corporations and shares. But the but what would happen is a small business, and when it's a small business and there's no riba, there's no interest, there's no none of these kind of uh, uh, you know shareholder value type ideas, right? It, within that mm. society, it naturally will uh, will conform to like local econo- uh, local economies, right? And so, you know, the, you know, like what you, you probably know better than me in terms of, uh, you know, the, the Muslim world back home, it's just a, you know, the banwala, you know, like the person selling ban or it's yeah. like that small business that Chaiwala, you know, is one selling the tea. They like that small business type enterprise will naturally regulate where it doesn't become this empire that, uh, that, uh, which, which, where they're trying to hack the human mind. So just to give you an example, for example, when it comes to food, when they were looking at formulating uh, cherry vanilla Dr. Pepper, they did about 4,000 tastings to make yeah. it so that it becomes the maximum amount of crave. That's the that's their wording, not mine. Crave, <laughs> right? 
So yeah, the, the, the Panuala cannot afford 4,000 tastings <laughs> to get the ideal pan, you know, in uh, the streets of Karachi, right? Like, that's not happening. <laughs> yeah, right. And and the thing is that these uh, companies become so large and such a behemoth that they just, you know, they, they collapse under their own weight. And so they have to do these things that biohack us in a bad way, right? Where we are, they're putting salt, sugar, fat into everything. So we just become addicted. In fact, you know, it's hard to argue it's food anymore. And one way I describe it, they, they sell us uh, food, uh, taste disguised as food because it doesn't have any nutritional value. I mean, when you look at the top 10 causes of death in the United States and Canada, it's all diet and health related, right? Because of the yeah. garbage we're putting into our bodies, right? And, and what I'm saying is the system is hardwired uh, to addict that. And that when it gets to that level, when as a Khalifa, as a as, uh, the society and even as activists in such a society, we shouldn't tolerate that, that, that people are just making us obese and, uh, you know, we have bad health. Like that's not the Islamic perspective. They, we, we know that Islam like requires us to enjoy what is right, forbid what is evil. And it's not equal to like someone who's healthy with someone who's not healthy. And we'd have to get the root cause, root cause of that and, and solve that. So I, I, I get I get what you're saying about scale, right? So I'm, yeah. you're, what you're saying is is that uh, Islam uh, does not allow these unnatural concentrations of wealth that capitalism has because of its use of riba and you know stock markets and all these like uh, you know the, the the selling of promises through insurance and things like that, all these fake products that they use. Uh, to essentially create these unnatural concentrations of of wealth, and so because they don't, we, we don't have that. There won't be billions invested in trying to, you know, hack us either our attention or our addiction or whatever it is. Uh, but I wanna, I wanna go back to the first point. I understand that you're saying that, you know, uh, there is a seriousness that needs to be maintained in Islamic life. I think, I think anyone knows that who's who's serious about being Muslim. Um, but like where, where, how would, how would a, an Islamic authority draw those lines? Like, is the Islamic authority going to say, no, that looks like it's too much fun. So let's not do that. That's kind of fun. So we're going to do that. Like what's, what are the metrics here? Like how, how, how would, how would a, a Khalifa decide whether a video game is too addictive or whether uh, a certain type of food has too much sugar in it? Or, or, or I mean, the sugar part, I understand, but because uh, you can look at that from from a health perspective, but like, or whether a particular speech is is too comedic, or you know what I mean? Absolutely, and I think that that goes back to the vision, right? And I think this is one of the important aspects that differs where Islam differs from capitalism. Capitalism has no fixed vision of what is right and wrong, right? Because it's a secular society, they have an uh, they just go with the flow, right? And essentially. Hmm. It's whatever the elites decide, right? They have an aqidah, they believe in freedom. But the 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 most important thing that understand there is no vision for society. Like why, like one of the when you look at the pandemic, for example, why the idea that most uh, people in the society, Muslims and non-Muslims, don't own their house is not a problem for them because they don't have a, a vision for everyone to own a house. They don't see the house as a basic need, unlike in Islam, where Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa explained to us that 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 this is one of the rights of uh, the son of Adam is to have a, a, you know, is to have a home, right? So they don't, no. they're not driven by a vision, right? And Islam is, right? And so yeah. when it comes to this idea of what we should do with our life and time, this is something that Islam has very well 
laid out. So we know in the hadith where Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, makes, make the most of five things before five other things. And one of the things he says, your spare time before your work. So bef use yeah. your, before you get busy, uh, you know, use your free time wisely, right? Yeah, so yeah. the idea that, you know, binge watching shows and playing hours of video game, this is not something from the Islamic culture. Just as like, we can't imagine the Sahaba doing such a thing. We should not be doing such a thing either. And it's not just about, well, I'm praying, my, I'm going to take a break from this video game, press pause and go, go and, um, uh, and, um, and pray my five prayers or, you know, listen to my parents when they call me. But rather, it's this, if we, across the society, if all our youth, and, you know, these days it's people up to 40 who are playing video games, right? Or even beyond, <laughs> right? Uh, if you have, if, if hours and billions of hours across the Ummah, millions of hours across the Ummah are being spent doing this, this is not, uh, this is not uh, in line with Islam. And specifically, this is called lahu, which is the yeah. organized distractions. And yeah. Ash-Shahrawi, who's a scholar, said, lahu is becoming distracted with something that is forbidden or with permissible entertainment, keeping you occupied from carrying out an obligation. And Ashatabi said, Lahu entertainment and vacancy from any work is mubah, permissible if it does not involve forbidden matters or occupy one from obligated matters. And he said, but he is blameworthy and the scholars did not agree with it, i.e. they did not like it. Rather, they would hate to see a man who was not busy with improving his livelihood or improving his afterlife. For he had wasted a period of time which was not used to gain any good for this world nor for the afterlife. And I think that, yeah. that that's a... A huge difference, right? Uh, where we, as Muslims, as an ummah, when we establish the khilafah, like the day of judgment should be clear and present in, in our minds, perpetually. Mm. Mm. Right? This idea that we are going to be resurrected, that we're going to die, we should remember the destroyer of pleasures, death. This is, this is, how can you be playing a video game when you know there's, there's, there's uh, your account, you're not going to live forever, right? And you know that, uh, that you have to do something in that time, right? Like when we hear those khutbah in, in Jummah, we immediately reach for our wallets to put something in the charitable donation to give that money to the masjid or to uh, you know someone who needs that money because we want, we're so, we're reminded, we're immersed in that because we remember that this day is coming and we want to do something to uh, earn something that day, right? And yeah. and that that is the difference, right? Whereas this, this, this society is shaped by heedlessness and, and just enjoying the moment I think our society would be shaped and driven by uh, the pursuit of the akhirah. And if you have, like I said, millions of hours being spent on this, yeah, if you need to take a break, you want to play, uh, you know, pick up soccer with your friends, you know, this is, you know, this is obviously allowed in Islam. But the idea that we're going to, we're going to go to the stadium and watch people play soccer. I mean, this is, this is not uh, something that, you know, that, that, that Ummat al-Islam, that the, the children of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, you know, can justify uh, when meeting him sallallahu alayhi wa sallam at the Haud or to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when they meet him on the Day of Judgment. Now, the, the, the Jazakallah khair for, for that reminder and that clarification. I guess uh, what, you'd be, what, you're, what you're saying there is, is that if, say, the Khalifa notices that a particular game is becoming particularly addictive, it's becoming a social issue. Like we know, uh, for example, that I mean, I think even the World Health Organization is talking about video game addiction as like a disease, right? Um, we've had like China, for example, say some. What, what did they say? They're only allowing children like four hours on the internet or something on weeknights, uh, right? As a whole, like not every day, but as a whole, right? Um, or something like that. Um, 
and they're they're like putting in like small ads in between like their social media like platforms that encourage children to like learn about science or go outside or stuff like that right <laughs> which is pretty cool um so i i guess there are organizations and even governments that are recognizing the addiction to technology video games social media etc uh as a problem for children i guess what you're saying is that if if uh, if an islamic authority were to exist and saw something like that it would then take a specific action to address that. It wouldn't necessarily like ban video games as a whole. When when you look at the the issue of uh, like I said, like it's one thing to take a break and do something as a you know like for a few minutes here and there, right? And yeah. and I think that when it comes to how that future generation, the generation that is. Uh, you know, that is born into an Islamic ecosystem, uh, like uh, where the society is fully Islamic, would they even find this attractive? That's what I would think that that generation would not even find that attractive. Yeah, there'll be the old generation who's trying to shed its capitalist training. But then the new generation who's born in Islam, who who's thinking, you know, that they have this obligation and that's front and center. I think that that will take 80 to 90% of the problem because we have a different mindset that the mindset has shifted because the systems have shifted, right? Like, I mean, you know, simple example I always like to use is just imagine Pakistan tomorrow made Arabic the official language, right? You know, like, yeah. you know, like how would that transform? Like same Pakistan, exact same, you know, same, you know, kind of like, you know, same constitution and everything. But the one thing they change is that we're going to learn Arabic and make Arabic, you know, compulsory in the education system so that every mm -hmm. kid, when he read, open a mushaf, uh, he would understand what he's reading, you know, when he's reciting and, and she's, you know, in the Salah, they can actually, you know, speak that language. Just imagine just that one idea, how that would completely transform Pakistan, right? And this is one law, you know what I mean? We're not even talking yeah. about, you know, establishing, transforming Pakistan into full-fledged uh, Khilafah. Well, we're just saying yeah. this one thing would completely transform uh, the way the Ummah thinks in Pakistan. Like, imagine the relationship between Pakistan and the Arab world after that, right? So, like, when you make these kind of, you know, kind of societal changes and uh, you really reorient how people think uh, that that is uh, and you give people opportunities, you know, to do that, like you give people opportunities to pursue, uh, you know, kind of other Islamic uh, activities instead of wasting time playing video games, you know, you can you can incentivize them. Like, so, for example, non-Muslims like. Um, it, you know, they'll go, you know, do charity work in uh, poor countries, for example, like rich non-Muslims, right? Uh, yeah. You know, and, you know, so, you know, there, before, and this was like in the 60s and so on, you know, like the Peace Corps, for example, yeah. you know, they would go to Ecuador or wherever, right, in the rainforest. You know, obviously, if non-Muslims can do that, uh, Muslims can do that too, right? Like they, they can go and, you know, figure out how to help people try to solve, you know, poverty. I know there's a guy... Uh, in 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 Toronto, for example, is trying to solve uh, homelessness. Right, he's built these shelters. Yeah. Called, it's called Tiny Shelters, yeah. uh, and uh, he, you know, kind of he 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 made it so they're fireproof. Like he takes a blowtorch to show it's fireproof and things like that. And this is a yeah. you know this guy. He was homeless himself, and so he solved that problem. And I like to think that that the Ummah, when it has this vision and it's clear and it's and it's not colonized, that they will you know kind of achieve same things. But like you said, there'll be these circuit breakers in, in place in society. If the Ummah is going off track, then yeah, sure, they will jump in. But I'd like to, but I think that the visionary nature and the, you know, the, 
the the when that ummah has that mindset of Islam, they'll be a very different ummah than what we see today. No, for sure, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I think, I think you might be more optimistic about the uh, the ability of uh, you know the institutions and this vision to deal with the problem of distraction. Uh, maybe I've just been living under capitalism for too long. Um, and don't remember the 80s when these things weren't, uh, you know, as uh, as addictive because I wasn't alive back then, right? Um, but um, but I guess, I mean, I do, I, do, I do take your point though because, you know, this is something I think about. If you were, if you were alive in the 1800s, for example, as a young person, like your uh, heroes as a kid was like Captain Nelson, who like you know flew or sorry like sailed a ship and was a conqueror, right? Right. Like actually did something with his life. You know, of course, something haram, uh, absolutely, because he served <laughs> the British Empire. I'm not, right. I'm not glorifying Nelson, right? Right. Uh, but uh, but who did something tangible with his life, right? Um, and those were your heroes. It wasn't a guy who kicked a ball around, right? Or absolutely. a guy who. Uh, you know, like <laughs> made a video of himself playing, uh, you know, Among Us or something. You know what I mean? Like that wasn't really uh, the the people that were idealized. And so because these conquerors were idealized for, for Muslims, like it would be a Muhammad bin Qasim or a Ahad bin Walid or, you know, like whoever, whoever brought Islam to your land, I suppose. Right. Um, and uh, and. By having these men uh, and and women, of course, as as your heroes, uh, you would it would affect your behavior. It would affect the kind of things you want to do. It would affect how you want to spend your youth, right? So I do I do take your point there. Um, I guess linked to that is especially now. I mean, just talking about uh, consumerism, it's gotten to a point where it's even more intense. So we're talking about more than consumerism and really full blown escapism at this point right because we've got virtual reality and augmented reality coming in uh you know we've got um zuckerberg's mentor i forget what his name is essentially talking about how uh people who complain about virtual reality are not are, are actually reality privileged you know their life and their reality is already engaging enough but what about those poor people who don't have an engaging reality that's why right. we need to create vr to give them this fake reality that they can be engaged in right right um this is genuinely scary stuff for a lot of muslims uh what is the islamic position on augmented reality and and how would once again how would an islamic state regulate it so I think again, it's it goes back to what we talked about earlier about the division between uh, what what is technology and what is civilization or hadara madaniya. And when you look at you have the Islamic civilization and it handles the technology, it was very different. I mean, just as an example, uh, when I was in high school, we had a we had a course on uh, on 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 space, man in space. It was called, and one of the ideas that I had for my assignment was to have people as astronauts to use virtual reality as a way to work out. So you'd be using like tension based, uh, you know, kind of uh, like tension oriented, uh, you know, bands and things like that. But then in, in your virtual reality, you're doing some kind of your biking or something like that. So that was kind of idea I had back. <laughs> this is early in the, in the nineties. Right. So that's super cool. By the way, you should, you should have, you should have built on that. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm still South Asian, so that was kind of I had to become an accountant instead, right? So <laughs> you, you, you could have you could have owned Googled, man. That's a Desi now. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> true, true. He's South Asian too, right? So <laughs> fair funny. enough. Fair, fair point. Uh, but uh, but the idea is that you can imagine that like an like an AR course where you have access to this dimensionality, for example. Uh, to teach, for example, the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. If you could imagine awesome. being in a VR setting or in, uh, in, uh, in an augmented reality setting, where you can, where we're, where the, where the scholar or the teacher is showing you the the landscape of uh, Jazirat al-Arab, uh, where Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the Arabian Peninsula, where Rasulullah Makkah Medina, where the battles are happening, and he, they're kind of showing you how in 3D how these battles were happening. And so I think there is obviously value to that type of technology and there's that dimension dimension dimensionality that we can kind of leverage but then again when it comes to the capitalists and what they do because their akida is about freedom and enjoying the dunya uh then yeah then you have these kind of pathologies and these kind of uh you know sort of haram uses of technology that kind of emerge early in their internet uh, when uh, this like the chartered accountants or as as we were called back then or now we're called cpas as you know what mm-hmm there was a product they were looking to unveil, which was called web trust. Cause at that time, the credit card companies hadn't really, you know, given that, uh, that, that guarantee that the, you know, that, you know, that you would have uh, your money refunded if it was stolen online. And so what they were mm-hmm. thinking was that CPAs could audit the website from a, and ensure that it couldn't, you know, there were enough controls over the website to uh, ensure it, it wasn't, it was secure. But the problem yeah. was, is that the CPAs knew that the majority website they didn't want to be associated with because what they were selling was pornography, right? <laughs> Excellent technology, haram product. <laughs> yeah, and CPAs they know because the you know CPAs are very conservative. They don't want to be associated with this kind of you know even even now with uh, like yeah, like Bitcoin, the CPA profession uh, has kind of stayed away from it because of the association with drugs and things like that. So, and child pornography. Yeah, absolutely. It was the yeah. Silk Road kind of thing, like that. It had that bad yeah. reputation, right? So for yeah. for uh, for things. So, it, but it gives you an idea that even within the capitalist system, like the accounting profession, which is well established, even they have an issue with sort of the uses of the technologies. Let alone uh, us yeah. as Muslims, right? And yeah. and so I think that when it comes to uh, virtual reality and, and augmented reality, there is there are some ser- serious issues. Like I know a brother, a young brother, who bought uh virtual reality and what he did was return it immediately because he said like look i i can feel how immersive this technology is and it's just it's, it's unhealthy to get involved with this and he returned it right young brother yeah. single not uh you know obviously not married and yeah. you know right away you know kind of re- uh you know returned it and and there's already uh, as you said um the world health organization has classified uh gaming disorder as a problem yeah. And there actually are addiction centers. So there's a place called Restart in Seattle, which deals yeah. with video gaming addiction. So we can definitely see how easily this is going to be. And I and I would, you know, I would, I think it's reasonable to say that this is going to lead to same sort of pathology as we see with drug addiction, right? Now, mm. some people may not be aware that not everyone who does drugs gets addicted, right? So mm. 17%, for example, who try cocaine get addicted, 50% who try alcohol become addicted. This is according to Michael Moss. He's written a book called Hooked. And when I was yeah. looking into uh, food 
and the addiction of food. This is where he was bringing this up to say, hey, like, this is the reality of addiction. It's not like, you know, when when people try cocaine, 90% of them become addicted, which is sort of what the media sends you. Right? I think that I think that's what most people think. Yeah, you try cocaine and it's done. You're you're an addict now. <laughs> yeah. So there are people who can do ca- cocaine. Actually, obviously, you know, drugs are haram in Islam. But what I'm trying to get at is that we can expect similar levels of uh, addiction when it comes to you know virtual reality, uh, augmented reality, where people can live as as uh, was kind of as you were saying about uh, Zuckerberg's mentor, where they can live a virtual basic life. You know, instead of uh, you know uh, you know like instead of uh, you know base minimum uh, you know like basic income, what you can have is a virtual basic life, right? Uh, yeah. Where you live in this kind of fantasy land. You can buy real estate, as we were joking earlier. But the idea is that when you go to that person's house, you won't find any food in the fridge. You'll see they're very emaciated. They might do some uh, type of, uh, you know, appetite suppressants just so they can keep keep on living in this world. Um, And you you can see that they're malnourished, that they're, you know, that that their whole apartment's a mess. But you can, but that's kind of what you already see with people who are addicted to drugs. That's the kind of yeah. life they, they, that they leave. And I, and I think it's a real problem. And if we're not careful, as Muslims, we, we can get sucked in. You know, that brother took Malawardim. He took, uh, you, know, uh, you know, good measures to make sure he wasn't one of the <laughs> a statistic. But yeah, he but just that, returned it. That's, that's yeah. amazing, actually. Malawardim <laughs> for that. I mean, it, uh, it kind of reminds me of, uh, of my mom when they were giving her. Uh, I guess it was a form of opioid. I'm not sure. Uh, after she, uh, you know, had her femur uh, broken and, and it was getting repaired, and I, she, she took a few, and she was like, "This feels really good." <laughs> and then she, and then she tried to stop taking it because it's like, no, this feels too good. I'm not yeah. taking it more, you know, to get the feeling of relief as opposed to the the pain. Right? The enjoyment is is more than the pain relief. Um, but I guess. I mean, this is this this probably goes into what you're talking about with this with your example of these these essential virtual reality addicts. Is 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 this the goal then? Like, is is this how they're going to manage uh, the fact that they have a system that doesn't take care of the needs of people instead of like making them uh, instead of allowing these people to become aware of their situation, aware that they're not alone in it and look for a solution to their problems collectively. Uh, they want us to be in our own little pods, uh, you know, playing with pixels. Well, I think that, I think that it's wrong to kind of look at it as if there is a plan. I think that that gives them way too much credit. <laughs> so, you know, Fair enough. And, and we could just look back at the history of, for example, of music and rock and roll, for example, the way yeah. that came about was that Sony introduced the transistor radio, which was, like its quality was much, much lower than regular radio, right? So for example, back in the 50s, RCA would have this, you know, giant sort of radio that would sit in the living room and dad would listen what he wanted and the kids were kind of hating it. And so what Sony, when it came up with the transistor radio, it gave a way for the kids to, you know, uh, you know, put a like a like a battery in it and go in their cars and listen to music that they liked, right? Now they didn't care that the the that the quality was low. But the point was that it was totally random. It's not like Sony in post-war Japan, you know, like we talked about, they were a hit with two nukes. They were like plotting in, in Tokyo on how they're going <laughs> to beguile the youth of America. And they like called Elvis Presley and Bill Haley and whatever it was that back then 
you know, to, to beguile the youth. That's not how it happened, right? I don't know, man. That's sounding like a really good narrative, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I almost want to believe that more than the obvious truth, which was that Sony wanted to make a quick buck. But <laughs> Absolutely, right? It's, uh, truth is stranger than fiction, right? So it's like... Uh, so, Definitely so- more boring. <laughs> <laughs> So and and that's and that and this is uh, this concept of innovation and how this happened. It's just it's like it has this randomness. Even like when you look at um, the uh, rise of like this annual, uh, you know, like the how 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 industry like tech, the consumer electronics industry sh- shifted from industrial electronics. It's just that the profits were exhausted from industrial electronics in the mid '90s, and so they decided we got to focus on. Uh, on on consumer tech, right? Because this is, we're going to make our, we've already made a trillion. They made about a trillion in 1998 and they were looking for new markets to exploit. So it's like, okay, let's exploit the consumers and focus. And so they shifted from, you know, kind of uh, like a, what they call business to business model. And then they focused on consumers. And so, yeah, you know, you want to buy an iPhone every year, but that's, uh, you know, that is, uh, that's again, it's a, the random walk of capitalism, right? And this is one of the important things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has warned us about this type of mentality in the Quran in Surah Jathia, verse 23, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to the meaning, have you seen he who takes his, his God, his own desire, and Allah has sent him astray due to knowledge and has a, set a seal upon his hearing and his heart and put over his vision a veil. So who will guide him after Allah? Then will you not be reminded? And what's very interesting is the next ayah, because, you know, we always hear that ayah in, in the khutbah and about, you know, about this importance of not taking your desires as your rub, right? But the next ayah is also very interesting because it says, and they say, there is not but our worldly life, we die and live and nothing destroys us except time. Except time. And, they have, and of, they have of that no knowledge and they're only assuming, right? Yeah. And that's in verse 24. And I, th- I find that very interesting because it goes back to the, it's it's like it's a, like these two ayah like describe the capitalist mentality very well you know subhanallah you know allah you know knows all things and and when you look at that that as we were talking about capitalism is that they what when you when you challenge them on their ideas uh i was on a, when i was uh and i was challenging um some uh i was uh, writing some uh, comments on a wall street journal article and i was challenging them the response i got was not that Oh, this is the vision of capitalism. It's like, oh, would you rather live in Venezuela, right? That's the kind of the response you get, right? <laughs> I, I love, I love how like the minute you start becoming critical of the very real problems of capitalism felt by everybody, the defensive response is to look at some failed communist nation, right? And it's like, why, why would those be my only two options, right? Like, why, why would you, why would you hold me to that, right? And and the thing is that that's what the problem of taking your desires as your god. It's just, just you just kind of go this way, you go that way, and you go and you know it's rock and roll. It's like you know VR. It's like it's you know you know drinking colas with twice the amount of sugar, twice the amount of caffeine. You just go whichever way the wind blows, and you have no real vision, right? It's the absence of guidance. We say at least seventeen times a day. We know the importance and value of guidance, and and freedom is the absence of guidance because the irony of this: if there's guidance, there's no freedom. Right. Yeah. If you know that you're going to be resurrected, how free are you? Like Abu Bakr, may Allah please him, was a freed man. Why? Because he was freed from the nar. That's the freedom. Real freedom is to be free from the hellfire. That's what freedom like. And the only way for that, a Muslim to achieve that, is to be like Abu Bakr, may Allah be pleased with him, who was you know chasing the akhirah with his full um, set of resources when he was you know whether it was in Mecca or Medina or wherever he was, he was in full pursuit of the akhirah. Right. And so. 
you know, we, 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 when we look at the West, we shouldn't be impressed by it at all, right? Like one of the things you don't really, they don't really talk about. And I have no idea why the environmental movement doesn't really focus on this instead of, uh, you know, other things that are hard. But this, like, uh, in 2019, there was a record amount of, of electronic waste that went into the trash heap. And the we're looking at 118 billion pounds. That's crazy. Uh, and, and just, you know, because that's sometimes big numbers like that, you're like, what does that really mean? So just to kind of give you an idea, that's the weight of about 850 million people. Right. That's, that's actually insane. <laughs> yeah. Right. And just, and that's going up and in, in 2016 it was 99 billion pounds. So it's going up, 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 up. Why? So that, you know, so that, you know, that this Dell and Apple and all these big electronic companies, Samsung and so on, they can sell more, more thing. And it's, it's linked to their uh, freedom of ownership, right? It's freedom. That's yeah. the problem. That's freedom is driving this, but no one wants to call it out. Right. For the false yeah. God it is right. As Allah SWT has warned us, you know, you know, if we follow our desires, we'll be we'll be led astray, right? Yeah, I, th I think uh, to your point in freedom, I mean, I think an important distinction there is the difference between freedom and liberation, right? Where freedom is, uh, you know, f uh, me following my desires as a default, while liberation is me being uh, free from an oppressive structure, right? And yeah. so Islam, in Islam, we are enslaved to Allah. And that liberates us from any other form of subservience. And of course, Allah takes care of us through guidance. Uh, but yeah, I think I think that's a that's a that's a meaningful uh, distinction there. Um, and yeah, no, I, I guess I guess the elephant in the room at this point. Uh, we've talked about virtual reality. We've talked about augmented reality. We've talked about consumerism. But the thing that I think a lot of people are are very worried about but may not be talking about is uh, is pornography, right? I mean, isn't that really what AR is going to be used for? Like, let's like let's just be honest, right? Uh, whatever technology the internet has created uh, has been used in that way almost instantly, right? right? Even like even all the people who talk about anonymity and like, oh, we're going to use the dark web. Like, the majority of the dark web is is child pornography, right? Right. Like, that's 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 a known thing. And if even if we move slightly away from that, and porn obviously is is an addiction on its own, uh, just you know, lewdness, you know, vain talk, uh, sharing yourself on uh, on social media in a way where your aura is exposed, uh, which is more more uh, particular to women, uh, generally speaking. Though of course, it applies to men as well. Um, I mean, all of these, when we get to the internet, are systemic issues. Right. As I said at the beginning of this, I mean, the most alluring, the most distracting, the most filthy stuff is just to click away at all times. It's already hard to deal with it when it's only on your small screen. Right. Is it even going to be possible to fight this once AR comes in? And, and, and more generally, what would the rules of free mixing be? If I'm in an AR reality and a woman is in an AR reality and we're talking there, are we are we you know is is the is shaitan the third in that situation or, or or what's going on yeah so i think that when we when we look at these kind of situations you know that you know that's a good example of it like we can start there for example like when it comes to with the relationship with the opposite uh, gender right between men and women right mm. and as youth right and so the, these issues are already there where you know people you know on social media are able to connect you know uh, in virtual in virtual space already and obviously, if you're 
if you're if you're committing ikhtilat is chit chatting between the between men and women, and this is not allowed, right? Like there there are specific yeah. reasons for men and women to kind of meet and connect, and you know it's business, it's Islam, and all that. And even in those kind of situations, um, it's uh, it's important to to be one step ahead of shaitan. And for example, like if you want to invite a non-Muslim woman to Islam, right? Yeah. Go call call a sister and say, well, this 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 woman is interested, uh, and it's actually a brother actually asked me, and I, and I, like he knew that someone was interested in Islam, and I said, yeah, my wife is willing to talk to them about Islam. So uh, I said, though it's technically allowed in Islam, it's best and uh, to that, and, and ironically, he's the one who said, yeah, and the third person is Shaytan, right? Like he narrated yeah. that hadith, yeah, and. Yeah. So, so yes, in the physical, when you meet physically, the third one that's present is shaitan because that's the issue of zina. If you're physically present, then, then that you're approaching, uh, you know, then it, it, zina, there's a high risk of zina being committed. Let's put it that way. But, but even like that online, um, you know, kind of chit-chatting, um, it's approaching zina, right? Because when you, you know, things, you know, it's only a matter of time before that offline becomes an uh, that online interaction becomes an offline interaction. Like, who are we sure. kidding? Right? We have instincts, we have needs. Like, and that's the thing is like it's not like these desires that men and women have for each other. I think Islam is very different because it recognizes our humanity. Right? It's not that these desires are wrong. Right? It's just that there's Islam gave a proper way of fulfilling, it, and that's marriage. Right? And that can be tough, and it can be quite a you know as as someone who grew up in the society, I can testify. That it's very hard, right? Like you know, it's not like I'm not from Mars, right? I grew up here, right? I know, yeah, yeah. I know the struggle of being a, uh, you know, like a, you know, a young man in this society. But we have to, uh, we have to abide by what is Islamic and uh, and 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 seek marriage as soon as possible and uh, and stay away from that temptation, right? So this is one of the you know kind of key things. Like Islam has a solution, but we have to you know you know kind of pursue it. Um, and I, I think that uh, that you know we should we should realize that this nature of this this uh, this type of thing and like for example like people parents for example they take when it even comes to the web they put the computer in the main room so that when the kids watching it they know what they're doing right and yeah so, yeah so so these things are there and and we are well aware that these uh, you know anyone who has not watched the social dilemma which is a net, uh, which is a documentary on netflix has to watch that to understand how how these uh things are very uh bad for you right um and on top of that this has been confirmed by the whistleblower that came out recently that said that an internal study at facebook said 13.5 percent of teen girls uh says that instagram makes their thoughts of suicide worse and 70 percent of teen girls saying it makes their eating disorders worse right so we know it's harmful it's just like cigarettes you know that this consumption and we should see it that way we know that we won't want our youth smoking cigarettes and we shouldn't want yeah. them involved in this uh, filth yeah but how how do we how do we avoid them doing that right it was, given the alluring and all encompassing nature of the problem is there really a way for us to uh to get them to stop or to not take an interest in it so I think I think that what what that kind of really boils down to is offering a, a counter narrative, right? And I think that uh, that what really comes down to is that if our youth are not given a mission, if they're not given a, a like if they're not given an alternative sort of focus, then mm-hmm. what? How can you? If you're just going to let 
what are you gonna, what do you expect? <laughs> like, like going back to what I was saying about being uh, someone sitting in a corner in a lunchroom, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's not realistic. You know what I mean? Like that's actually negative. Uh, you know, that's going to be negative. So you have to kind of give an alternative to that. Right. So it's, it's, it's like, we have to sit as parents and as community leaders to offer an alternative, find, you know, alternative ways uh, for youth to, uh, to, to be with, you know, you know, doing like, I know, I know one imam locally, for example, takes, uh, like youth groups on, on, uh, you know, like those, uh, tree top, tree top trekking type things. Okay. Very you know, cool. Like, you okay. know, like that. I took my, I was, I was, the reason why I met him there is because I was taking my stepdaughter there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so it's like, it's like as parents and as, as other people, it's, it's important to, uh, to, uh, uh, to, intervene and 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 have these kind of alternatives for that because if we're not there involved uh you know with with our youth we won't do that like one of the most important things for example like you know teaching our kids syrup you know for example like we have a mind where we're hardwired for a story as we know right so yeah why don't, you, why, why don't we tell our youth the best story i know that early on in my life that you know i was exposed to the sierra as a young as a young person and it was it, it you know it it always kept that sort of, you know, ground reality about this is what life is really about, right? Like one of the vivid examples was one of the Sahaba sacrificing his life for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And that really taught me what life is really about. It's like, you know, like that this is, you know, like it's not, you know, as they say, word is, uh, talk is cheap, right? But you yeah. really have to want to sacrifice and to be with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. This is the most important thing. And this is what we really have to focus on. Yeah, I remember as a as a kid, me and my brother uh, learning about the exact nature of uh, Samaya, may Allah be pleased, whether it's martyrdom. It was one of those like defining moments when you realize that as a Muslim, you've signed up for something very serious, right? Because Absolutely. It's so, I don't know, it was just one of those things where you realized, oh my God, would I be able to do that? And and I want to be able to do that. And and for a young person to be thinking at that level of seriousness, I think, is very important. And I think, you know, if oftentimes for young people, Islam is presented as like boring capitalism, right? Yeah. Where it's like, you know, just do, just do the things everyone else is doing. Worry about your career and worry about making money and make worry about, you know, like doing really well in school and you know, being a part of society and, and do all the things everyone else is doing. Just, you know, don't drink, don't listen to music, don't watch porn, don't have a girlfriend. It's like, well, okay, the, the, my life is virtually identical to a Kafir's life. I just don't get to do the zina, right? Or get to go to the parties. Uh, why would I want that, right? Yeah. Um, it makes much more sense to be like, no, you have a completely different perspective of life and be actively engaged in that, right? Um Absolutely, which, which I think, which I think is what you're, what you're drawing attention to. And the other thing is, it's also to have a greater consciousness of the ummah, right? Rasulullah mm-hmm. sallallahu alaihi wasallam, as you know, he said the parable of the believers and their affection and mercy and compassion for, for each other is that of a body. When any limb aches, the whole body reacts with sleep, sleeplessness and fever. And I know that understanding this hadith at a very young age, it really like an understanding, like uh, you know how people, you know, like like now it's you know the Uyghurs or you know, all the way from China to even France, you know, in France, our, our brothers and sisters and sisters, especially are persecuted, right? In Quebec, they're persecuted, right? And having that umma consciousness, it, it's like a, a bucket of cold water being thrown in your face. Like when you're worried about how much coins you've accumulated in some stupid game, you know, and you're not worried about uh, how, 
a child in uh, China is being converted into a into a disbeliever. There's something you know. There's something you know that you know that doesn't sit well. You know that how can you yeah. how can you live with yourself knowing that you're safe and 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 healthy where where your you know brothers and sisters across the Muslim lands in Palestine and Kashmir in you know and even in, in the Muslim la- countries themselves like life is not a walk in the park either, right? With of course. you know right now we see how with the inflation how people are you know even middle class people like in Egypt are you know facing the ruthlessness of capitalism because they have the fiat currency whereas Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala has instituted the gold and silver standard and so their their savings are going down they can't afford the basic uh, necessities of life they can't afford to eat meat anymore right because of prices going out of the sky you know so how can we who have all this free time waste it knowing that the ummah needs our time needs needs us to raise uh, you know that that uh, that there the that that level of consciousness in ourselves and and those around us because if you're conscious and the people aren't aren't conscious around you you got to make them conscious right and yeah. so I think that that in addition to you know studying the uh, the 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 sacred stories of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and and uh, and of the Anbiya as Allah subhanahu wa taala has revealed in the Quran we also have to be aware of our ummah and what is happening. Uh, and to be, uh, you know, uh, educating ourselves on on, on those uh, on those realities. Okay, okay. I, I, so, I guess one of the the main differences I'm seeing between uh, the capitalist use of big tech and the Islamic, you know, use what it would be under an Islamic authority, um, is the idea of who is ultimately in control. Right. Right. Where in the capitalist system, it's uh, the elite uh, based on their own interests, writing their own rules, regulating themselves and creating laws for themselves and applying them as they choose to fit uh, who are in control. And they they can write those laws and those regulations to, uh, you know, enrich themselves, essentially. I mean, which group, you know, left unaccountable wouldn't. Right. Right. Um. And in Islam, uh, control ultimately is in, is in is in the hands of Allah, and uh, and 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 we as as people, regardless of whether it's the Khalifa, whether it's the the business owner, or whether it's the the consumer, uh, our 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 actions are accountable to Wahi, right? They're accountable to revelation, uh, and uh, and the inst- and that that that's true, not just in an intellectual sense but actually physically like institutionally true uh in an islamic authority i guess my question is in the absence of that islamic authority right now the algorithms the control to access our ability to socialize everything on the internet is controlled by these people so how do we as a muslim community survive when everything we do to strengthen ourselves using the internet uh, is controlled by people who actively oppose our interests, who are part of that jalut that we're trying to fight. So again, I think first is to educate yourself and understand the nature of the challenge, right? So I think the first thing is that, you know, there's a range of debate. Like one of the things that when you delve into social media, for example, like Facebook, you have people like Bruce Schneier, who is a renowned information security expert. He was the, the security expert that uh, Edward Snowden uh, reached out to. Uh, mm. To uh, you know, when the when the NSA to reveal the NSA hacks, so he has that um, he's competent from a from an information security perspective. So when he was talking about Facebook, he said, "Don't make the mistake of thinking you're Facebook's customer. You're not. 
you're not. You're the product. Its customers mm-hmm. are the advertisers, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting about that? That sounds shocking. And you know, the the hard truth though is that that's been the case with you know with radio, television. You're sold to the advertisers. You know, like even that. Yeah. One of the things I was uh, re- when I was researching on consumerism about the uh, you know the '80s show, the Transformers. Yeah. It's like it was that only came to being after uh, Reagan de- uh, deregulated the FCC to allow uh, to allow advertising to children because basically it the the show was not even a work of art really it was just a way to sell toys right yes uh, absolutely yeah you can watch it again and it's it's immediately obvious <laughs> yeah it's like it's like the some the you know when when you dig into the sort of the the realities it you know they had some cheap in, in like cheap laboratory in uh, in uh, i think it was korea or japan i forget which uh, which area it was but but that's the sort of they outsourced the work and they had the you know they'd have mistakes on the shows and things like that but the, but the point here is that think about that all that effort was like you're just like collateral damage as a child you know yeah. you're just your point is just to buy the that that toy right they don't care about you they don't care about re- i mean yeah like they have, might have had psas and gi joe but the point is yeah. that that was more i think a surface uh, kind of just you know caring about the surface but you're just a uh, you're just collateral damage they don't care what message you're getting they don't care about what you're learning they don't care about whether this is going to turn you into this uh, slave to the consumer system, right? In fact, that's probably what they want, right? That's Uh, exactly what they want. I remember the Pokemon, uh, when Pokemon was introduced when I was a kid, and it was insane because that show was clearly just made to sell cards, right? Right. And those cards were insane, man. People would get into fights on the schoolyard. You were gambling with those cards, right? Because they would play games and then depending on how you battled, you could take the other person's card that was called playing for keeps, right? Right. And uh, it was... It was a very, very difficult time, basically. I think schools ended up having to ban Pokemon cards, which is very funny. That is funny. But, yeah. And what's interesting yeah. about that commentary is that it's not really accurate. Uh, Jerry, Jaron Lanier, who's, uh, he's the one who coined the term virtual reality, so he's a heavyweight in the techn- technology industry as well. He says a bigger mm-hmm. problem is that we're all carrying around devices that are su- suitable for mass behavior modification. And what he's saying is that the, what is really dangerous about these algorithms is they modify our behavior. And mm. in a separate, he doesn't mention this, what I'm going to mention to you now, but this really illustrates, and it's funny because the where this statistic comes from is actually to illustrate how you can actually, it was a, a more from the point of view of strategies you should implement as a business, right? Mm. And what they mentioned was about how YouTube went from about, let's say, about 200 uh, million hours being watched per day to a, a billion hours watched per day, right? Okay. Makes sense. <laughs> so they had this goal, and they reached it. Go, you, you, uh, YouTube reached that goal within ahead of schedule. They were supposed to reach it by 2016, and they reached it a few months before that. But, but that really tells you what is happening here. Time is finite, right? As time yeah. is finite. So the question... Uh, and when I teach this uh, course on innovation, the question I ask my students, where did that time come from, right? Where did that, the, where did those 800 million or so hours come from, right? And and what could have been done with it yeah, <laughs> if it wasn't right? spent wasting away in front of YouTube? Right, right. So for example, because you went from this time to time, so that time had to come from somewhere. Did it come from, you know, like, I mean, I'm in a, you know, I teach accountants, so I had to talk, you know, you know, talking about, you know, did it come from work? Did it come from studying? But did it come from family? Were you spending that time with family? And I even said, you know, were you trying to solve world hunger, right? Because the point is that 
to your point is that like, shouldn't we be using these 800 million hours to solve world hunger? And that really illustrates how, um, how this, this society has no vision. They just wanted to do that. And the interesting thing about YouTube, because as you know, it's owned by Google. Yeah. The, the people who do search, their job is to serve you the most relevant result. And so you grab that result and you leave. That is how the, the, the Google search results work. Now, yeah. when the individual is in charge of this project to get people to watch more YouTube, that doesn't work, right? Because like the example they give, if you're going to watch a bow tie being uh, tied and you have uh, one video that, do- that does it in a minute and a half and another video that does it in 10 minutes, yeah. Which one do you want? And the Google search people say, we want the first one, right? Because you yeah. get what you need and go. And then he's like, no, yeah. we have to give them the 10 minute one because that's how we make money from advertising. I don't know if he spelled it out that way, but that's yeah. what, what was driving him is you want people to spend more time on YouTube, more advertising, yeah. more time, right? That 800 million hours. Why do they want that 800 million hours extra, right? It's because yeah. they want you to click on advertising, right? So, so this is a, a good example of how what Jaron Lanny say, says happens on a pr- very practical level where YouTube has modified our behavior as a collective to watch a billion hours of video instead of you know the 200 million hours approximately. Uh-huh. And here we are, right? Like wasting time as opposed to pursuing the akhirah. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, I guess I guess my question is what what like d- what does that say about our ability as a, as a community to use these tools are, are they is it possible for us to use them in a way uh that's beneficial or is that are we just drawing more people into the problem so i mean in in you you have to you have to make that change right like you have to uh, you have to make that kind of vision and you have to hold yourself accountable right as umar bin khattab please let me to hold himself accountable uh, on a daily mm-hmm. basis, and we have to do the same thing, right? As we said from the outset, understanding the nature of the problem is key, but at the end of the day, Allah is going to hold us accountable, right? So, you know, something something simple with Netflix, you know, do you really need, if you've noticed you're wasting time on Netflix, cancel your subscription, right? Yeah. You know, take these kind of practical steps, you know, re- you know, make it, if, you, if you're wasting time on your mobile, you know, delete Netflix app off that, right? Try to, tr- try to, you know, succeed in your, in your, in your, put steps towards success in terms of trying to achieve that. I was, uh, when I was going through uh, one of these courses on um, Audible for writing uh, nonfiction and the, indiv- the, the teacher on that, in that course said, get rid of your TV, right? You know, g- get rid of the, 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 there's no time for TV. If you want to be a writer, you have to get yeah. rid of that, right? And this is a yeah. non-Muslim saying that you want to pursue this thing, it's a fitna for us. It's a fitna for someone who wants to do something, you know, productive with their life as well, right? Sure. And and so we have to kind of like think strategically about our life, right? Like these, uh, you know, these billionaires and all that. Don't we shouldn't kid ourselves. They're not just sitting, uh, you know, working a couple hours a day, smoking cigars, right? They work, you know, eighty hours a week, and 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 they work crazy time, right? So we yeah. shouldn't think that oh, you know, the non-Muslims have it easy. The ones who take life seriously they don't they work like crazy right yeah so so we need to have those kind of uh you know kind of have a strategic mindset when it comes from these things and we really have to understand like if we're wasting your time watching shows do we really want the colonialist capitalists to be inserting ideas in, in our mind like one 
one episode, for example, uh, that when I was doing this research on uh, Transformers was that the in the show, uh, the, 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 the country, which was supposed to be a Muslim Arab country, was Karbamia, right? And oh so, <laughs> yeah, right? And so just think about all those people like who are about my age or a little bit older who are, you know, in Muslim lands when, you know, in a, in a military context, who have that in their subconscious, right? They're being programmed and conditioned to have anti-Muslim sentiments, right? Yeah. And so, you know, do we really, you know, when you, when it's weird to think about like my emotions towards transformers, right? Because it's like, here it is. It's like, these people are against Islam. These people are against Muslims, right? And it's like, how do I feel about that, right? And we have to realize that, hey, I should not be giving an on-ramp to this stuff. Now, if you're going to use time for more productive things like documentaries, understanding the capitalist system, these are all, you know, valid ways of approaching that. But you have to be one step ahead of Shaitan and not fall into trap where you're just kidding yourself. And maybe it's better to go cold turkey and then come back when you're in a better mindset, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I guess uh, following this theme of control, um, there's there's obviously a lot of conversation around censorship and big tech, right? Um, uh, certain stories being suppressed because they don't meet the interests of the elite. I, I mean, there's there's obviously conspiracy theory stuff as well with COVID and all that, right? And fact checking, and, um, and uh, the idea is that many people are saying that this whole idea of there being fake news on social media is just a pretext for censoring dissident political views, right? Right. Um, but there is also obviously real fake news out there, right? Like yeah. uh, uh, Barack Obama isn't a secret Muslim. Like any Muslim <laughs> knows that, right? Yeah. Um, the, the, the stuff that's said about uh, love jihad in India is not really happening, right? right. And there are social media uh, organizations that are saying that, 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 that it is. So I guess my question is, if you are the Islamic State and you're seeing, uh, you know, fake news be a problem, um, how do you foster an environment for healthy ikhtilaf, right, where people can can have dissident views, but you're also combating falsehood at the same time? How do you how do you strike that balance? So I think that uh, when it comes to uh, looking at, so for example, the spread of fake news, right? That occurs, why does that occur? Like, why does that occur in a capitalist society when one person shares news where they're not sure of its authenticity, right? Yeah. That happens because people don't really feel accountable, right, about the news they share. Like, I, you know, I tell relatives, like, when you're going to share something, you have to be careful as a Muslims, you know, like, as a Muslim, how can you share something that's false, right? Yeah. And that's a very different thing where you have a mindset of accountability versus freedom where you're not, you don't feel accountable, right? Whereas mm -hmm. Islam, it's not, you can't blame a scholar, you can't blame your friend, you know, instead you must take responsibility of what you share. And, you know, a good example is, for example, when that, um, when Abu Bakr, may Allah be pleased with him, met that, uh, that uh, I forget who it was, the disbeliever who was mocking Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam about the Isra wal Miraj, right? Yeah. And what Abu Bakr said, is, as, as most of us know, is that uh, if he said it, then I believe him, right? Yeah. Meaning yeah. that he's not just going to believe everything he said. Now, again, this is a non-Muslim society. This is Quraysh. This is Makkah. This is not uh, the, uh, 
the, the Islamic State in Medina, but he took that step to be aware that what the information he was being fed was not verified, right? Yeah. And so that's when why it, he puts the if in there. He doesn't say, "Oh, that's true." He says, "If he said it, it's true." Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. And so that's where that whole concept of authenticating hadith, you know, emanates from this exa- the illustrious example of Abu Bakr may Allah be pleased with them. And so I think that when you when you know that that mindset, uh, you know, there's no institution here involved, right? It's just Abu Bakr who has the Islamic mindset, may Allah be pleased with them. And that same type of mindset, when we have the Khilafah, a full fledged Islamic society. Before you hit that share button, it, it comes down to, is that, should I take responsibility? So that fake news problem is, is very different, right? Like in that, like even in capitalism, when you have, uh, like, for example, when it comes to financial information, as, as you know, I'm an, an accountant and, you know, one of the big things accountants do is audits uh, yeah. of financial for information. They audit the thing because everyone knows that capitalists are liars, right? So you can't trust yeah. them to say they made a million dollars, right? Because like Enron, they lied, right? <laughs> and got the accountants in on it too. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. So so what, so what I'm trying to get at is that the, the, they underst- the capitalists understand that. So that information is very uh, regulated. There's a lot of checks and balances to authenticate that information, right? Even though there's, yeah. you know, it's not foolproof, obviously. But it's just as a just as a as an understanding of how when a society even in the capitalist system, when you share information that is matters to capitalism, which is about you know capital allocation decisions, you know whether the, this amount of company made in this uh, this the amount of money a company made, how many assets they have is relevant, then there are um, you know the, there's consequences. An interesting thing with the Elizabeth Home trial of the. Uh, uh, you know the Theranos trial, which was that company which was testing blood, and it was all—it was really, a, you know, <laughs> it was all fake. Yeah. It was all fake, right? You know, she got convicted on the, you know, the charges related to investment, not not defrauding uh, health, uh, patients, right? Which goes to show yes. that, yeah, yeah, her, her crime was defrauding investors, not defrauding patients. Yeah, who's, who she was actually giving bad information to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then, I mean, that's like capitalism in a nutshell, right? Like that's yeah. the difference. Do you, so we as Muslims should realize that, hey, when when information matters, there's, there's consequences to be paid if you're going to mess with that information, right? And it's similar yeah. to a Muslim. A Muslim doesn't, it's not about financial, it's any information that he or she has, comes encounters, they have to have that kind of mindset of accountability. And we know, we have hadith. We know the concept of muhadith, the idea of, of someone who will authenticate the the hadith so like this idea of authenticating information is 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 a pillar of our deen right the whole hadith yeah. is ba- hadith yeah. are based on this concept right yeah yeah absolutely absolutely no that's 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 very true so i guess i guess the the larger question there was that like the the idea of enjoining good and forbidding evil the idea of combating uh you know falsehood um not just in like fake news, but actual oppression and tyranny and things like that, um, is so is so central to Islam from 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 what I understand. And it can't just be like somebody saying, "Oh, you know, did I do anything wrong?" Or uh, you know, it, it it has to be something institutional. It has to be something that uh, society as a whole is capable of of holding a leader to account. A prime example that comes up in my mind, is when uh, the Hajj stampede happened. Uh, what year was it? The most recent one. Um, and the king of Saudi, uh, Salman, 
he went to the uh, Grand Mufti of Saudi and he said, you know, if, if I if I made a mistake, I want you to hold me accountable for it and let me know if I made a mistake. And of course, the Grand Mufti said, no, no, you're good. You didn't make any mistakes, um, which is a very surprising uh, finding on the Grand Mufti's part. Um, but my, 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 my deeper question there was, like the Grand Mufti, even if he wanted to, wouldn't have any tools available to investigate uh, the king because th- those tools don't exist in Saudi. There's no media that's independent. There's no like legal bodies. There's nothing that he can use. Uh, there's no alternative political parties that are, you know, like doing opposition research or anything like that, right? Uh, it's just the king asking a guy to determine in 10 minutes whether he made a mistake or not, right? Right. Which obviously is not how Islamic accountability can operate. So what is that culture of healthy ikhtilaf within within an Islamic society? So it's the, it's as uh, we are, have a vision, we have a, and it, what's interesting is that we have a standard. You know, I think the first and foremost, we have a furqan. We have a criterion of right and wrong, right? Which yeah. uh, enables the, uh, the accountability of of the khulafa of the leadership right like interesting because in islam the highest position is not really the khalifa but the texts of islam right like he yeah. is he's not immune or above criticism of those texts right and so in a in a very practical thing so first thing is his you know obviously his taqwa which is you know obviously most people would agree but then there and then there's other kind of structures in the khilafa that would enable this so the first one would be a judge the court of unjust acts Mahkamat al-Mudhalim, which would, you could take a case up to the uh, to that judge, that that branch, a whole branch of, 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 of uh, the judiciary be focused on accounting the Khalifa, right? And so you could take a case, this could be that where the Khalifa wronged you, uh, you know, for example, when uh, Amr bin As's son abused that uh, Coptic uh, Egyptian in the time of Amr bin Khattab, may Allah, please, may Allah be pleased with them, you know, that mm-hmm. case was taken to Roman Khattab and he, that uh, they, they were held accountable. The governor's yeah. son was held accountable. So that's a good example of, I mean, here it's the Khalifa holding the Walaya accountable, but, you know, the concept we can see uh, that, uh, you know, we can see how, you know, that such a court would do that. And another instance when Umar bin Khattab wanted to expand the haram, you know, when and, and take someone's private property, the judge sided with that individual preventing that from happening, right? So, that you know when when Omar was held accountable by the judge again that's an example of that then there's also the role of political parties where political parties will be established on Islam alone Islam alone they can't be established on commies or any other kufr deen but the the this these parties would then work to uh to uh, to hold you know the ruler accountable and we can kind of see that like with the scholars of the past like Ahmed bin Hanbal may Allah be pleased them who took a stand about the nature of the Quran against the Khulafa. And this is a good sort of a model where it's not just one imam, but rather a group that is, you know, around this imam. Um, you know, obviously this, these groups would have to be informed by, you know, scholarship and people who know what they're talking about. But the idea is then with that, you know, that network kind of effect of that party where they could use information technology to share the information, share the leaflets, share, you know, whatever is necessary to understand the, the ahkam and then create awareness and hold the Khalifa accountable. Have protests if the Khalifa is doing something haram, like where you have uh, uh, where you have um, uh, protests to uh, you know to to make that change, right? Because that's allowed. Mm-hmm. Like obviously, you can't take up arms unless the Khalifa uh, you know implements kufr bawa, clear kufr. But if yeah. he he's within Islam and he's just doing uh, something that's within Islam, but it's not right, 
we should hold yeah. hold them accountable with 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 our tongues and protests and things like that. Okay, okay, that Jazakallah for that. I, I guess to to wrap up our conversation, uh, I want to I want to talk about solutions, right? We've talked about a lot of problems. We have talked about solutions from the perspective of what Islam would do if it had authority. But in the, I, I guess, I guess to to begin the conversation, you know, in the absence of such an authority existing right now in our current situation, what do we do? Like we have young people, we have families, we have people uh, that are trying to combat this deluge of filth and distraction. What can we do to combat it on an individual level and as a community? So it goes back to is providing that alternative ecosystem that we discussed earlier. Really, it's about in, in, in informing the youth about uh, Islam as a holistic uh, system so they have confidence in that. And I think that's, as I said at the outset, that's a big part of the Islamic system, uh, of our challenge as youth is are we sure that our youth are confident in Islam, right? Like, are we sure that, you know, when they uh, see atheists or other, you know, kind of toxic people who, you know, belittle the deen and, and, uh, and, and to be clear, not all atheists do that, just the toxic ones, but some people who, who, you know, out there, they're just, you know, I mean, they have nothing, you know, they have no, nothing better to do in life than, um, you know, you know, to attack Muslims and Islam, because, you know, that's obviously, you know, gets the algorithms going and goes back to what we talked about Facebook, like Facebook loves this kind of, you know, rewards this kind of uh, negative kind of behavior. Um, you know, are, are youth confident? Can they answer that? Right. And, and that's why we have to really be on the ground with the youth to understand what, what is, uh, what are their uh, issues? And, you know, I mean, with this podcast, for example, if anyone's listening and they, they want to, you know, ask us questions about these things, we, we'd be more than happy, for example, to dedicate a whole episodes or, you know, multiple episodes talking about the proofs, for example, of Akida, right? Of course. And, and so I think it's, it's, it's these types of things is one is nurturing. The other thing is offering that alternative vision and to say, hey, look, like this capitalist system, it's generating billions of pounds of trash. <laughs> This is not going to work out for anybody, really, right? And yeah. you know, I mean, it's it's. I mean, with the pandemic, you know, it's uh, we see that like how incapable this system really is, right? Like, like this. What uh, Umar bin Khattab, may Allah be pleased with them, he didn't just get hit with a with a plague, which was much deadlier. He also got hit with a famine in the same year, right? And the, That's incredible. And, and the, the Khilafah under him didn't. It didn't just. It, didn't, it wasn't just. It didn't. It didn't. It didn't tremble. It did like it. It, it proceeded to expand. You know what I mean, yeah. and so Islam is, uh, you know, you know these these things though, pandemics. It's like it's that old that problem, and still the capitalists can't deal with it because their akida and their systems that emanate from that akida, because they're just random. They can't deal with this type of stuff, right? And so, you know, these things that you know we're we're coming from a point of confidence. We have to similarly um, inculcate this kind of confidence and culture in the youth, so they too become focused in in understanding learning and spreading these things and that is um you know that will take all your free time up from you and you don't have time for these things and it's also about the basics you know like um you know respecting women respecting your parents using your time wild wisely these types of things uh you know attending to the you know basics of islam salah uh you know siam and uh and and quran these types of things these things are all there but the point is i think it's to open up the wider mission as opposed to just uh you know, self-help, uh, individualistic type approach. I think we should have that wider mm. consciousness, and and as I mentioned, also that includes uh, being conscious of what's happening to our ummah. 
So the, and and you mean that on, on a on a communal level, right? So like Absolutely. us working together in Islamic spaces like masajid or community centers or whatever it is we have to create this consciousness of an alternative uh islamically basically yeah absolutely okay okay and i i guess to 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 wrap up our our discussion um the paradox i guess is and it's this relates to an earlier question that i asked you know if we are to create this kind of mass consciousness even in a, a single community won't we have to rely on the same big tech that is the problem to begin with? And it just goes back to that age-old question, will the revolution be televised, right? Will we be able to create this uh, uh, media-friendly or uh, you know, uh, technologically delivered revolutionary message to people? So definitely or do the we have alternatives? Yeah, the revolution definitely will not be uh, televised uh, and it will not go better with cocoa fight germs that cause bad breath, as uh, <laughs> Scott Heron said, right? Uh, so the the thing is that, I mean, these tools, uh, they, you know, it's 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 more of a, like the mindset I think of having is more of guerrilla warfare, right? Like it's more mm-hmm. like we should use these tools, but recognize that all platforms burn at the end of the day, right? I mean, mm. I mean, as as Trump, we all agree that he hates Muslims, he hates Islam. Um, and you know he hates other other people as well. Uh, the but even him <laughs> was deplatformed. You know what I mean? The yeah. the most at, you know the the president of the United States of America was deplatformed. You know what I mean? And it and it shows you how little uh, you know principles the capitalists have that they don't even honor free speech of someone like you know who is the is is like is their leader. You know what I mean? They don't even respect his free speech, right? And, and it really shows like how Asabiya and tribalism has dominated the the discourse in America. And we as Muslims, the reason I'm pointing that out, we as Muslims cannot join that, that tribal fight between the left and the right, the Democrat and the Republican, the conservatives and the liberals and the NDP. We should never join that fight. And we should actually look at it from a distance and go, wow, this is really a, you know, a disaster, right? But, yeah. but the point is that like, you know, and the same thing happens to Muslims, right? Like we know, like you know, uh, Muslim groups who uh, raise funds during Ramadan with completely benign content were suspended by Facebook's artificial intelligence. Even Mark uh, Ruffalo, who's an actor, uh, you know, when when they when he had highlighted uh, transgressions against Palestinians, uh, Palestinian displacement specifically, there was a, a you know like a warning label comes on on when he posts that, right? So it just kind of shows this this bias, but we know this bias exists, right? Like when we look at yep. the media, we know that Muslims don't get a fair shake in the media at all, right? Like I, t- I talked about yeah. that the cartoons, but we know that from A to Z, we know that this system is biased against us. So we shouldn't expect anything different about big tech, um, and that we should understand that it is controlled and monitored and that type of thing. But yeah, like we use that, you know. At the end of the day, the Quraysh controlled Mecca. But they couldn't. Yeah. They try to tell people put cotton. Uh, they try to tell uh, the the people, the Arabs, to put cotton in their ears. Uh, yeah. But but to fail Ibn Amr al al Dosi, may Allah be pleased with them. He took those cotton out of his ears. Right? There's yeah. Allah will always make a way for us. He made a way for our beloved Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam. That system could not stop the rise of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the Qurayshi system, and the capitalist system will not stop the rise of Islam because it's promised by Allah subhanahu wa taala. And that we should take stock in that promise. 
Like we have a promise from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the hadith that said there'll be a khilaf in manhaj al after this, this, this era of darkness. We have that promise. And it's a, yeah. a sahih hadith in Ahmed. And so we should know that we're going to be victorious. And it's just a matter of us doing our effort and using these tools as much as we can. And then, um, and then finding ways around it as Rasulullah did in Mecca. And, and inshallah, Allah, if he so wills, will make us amongst the victorious. And may, may he do that soon. Ameen. 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 Uh, Brother Malik, Jazakallah khair so much for your time today and for answering all these questions. Are, are there any closing thoughts you want to leave us with? And uh, in, in, I mean, if I can, if I can bias you, influence you a little, if you will, uh, if they can be centered around uh, the end of our discussion, which is really um, working towards this alternative consciousness in our community. Yeah, I would say that uh, we we should a, a Muslim should never le- lose hope. You know what I mean? Like we should not be uh, deceived by the 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 abundance of kufr and the dominance that the disbelievers have upon us. Their mm-hmm. their ideas are weak. Uh, we can see the weakness in them, and we should be confident in Islam. And we should really you know go through and revisit the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and see how. And really look at it as a as as the story of a human being, right? Not of an angel who didn't didn't have you know hard times, like when his wife died, when his uncle died, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. That was tough, right? Yeah. And uh, it's important to make the sirah a manual for life, right? Like to get involved in the struggle and then ref- and then and be immersed in the sirah, uh, because that will give us confidence. That will give us that attachment to our beloved messenger, and more importantly, it'll inform our actions. And we'll realize that, you know what, we are going through what the Messenger وسلم, and the Sahaba, may Allah be pleased with them, what they went through in Mecca. And so it's, you know, once we adopt that consciousness, we'll be able to kind of map where we're on the land- landscape, right? Like, you know, one of the most important things when we look at our Shahada is negation, right? The first part of the Shahada is negation. Mm. What are the false gods of today? Who are the Quraysh of today, right? And that's, and that's a really important question, right? That's a really, really, really important question. And, and you know, we're telling all our listeners out there that these are the capitalists and the false uh, false god of today, as we said, is the desires and the freedom. And yeah. if you don't, and it's important to understand that because then you can kind of articulate what the shahada, you know, with the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and obeying Allah and, and, and making tawaf around what he has said in terms of systems, in terms of these alternatives we're talking about. This is the this is the the, the fight of Tawheed in the in, in these days. And so we have to learn it, we have to understand it, and we have to share it, inshallah. Jazakallah khair. Once again, may Allah reward you for your time, for your effort, for sharing the breadth of your knowledge. And uh and uh Jazakallah khair to anyone who's taken the time to listen to this. And inshallah we will join you uh in, in the coming weeks. Assalamu alaikum, brother. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah khair.